And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, September 1st, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, how the Ability One program is coping when agencies need fewer office supplies. Plus, how and why DOD has updated its readiness plan for biodefense. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the Defense Department has had little success establishing a chief management officer. Over the past 15 years, it rose to become the third highest ranking defense official by title. That lasted less than three years before Congress declared it a failure and ended the position. The Defense Management Institute recently looked at what went wrong and what DOD can do differently in the future. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr talked to one of the study's authors, Institute for Defense Analyses researcher Jason Deschant. Part of the charter uh, or the, the mandate of the study was to do just that. It was to uh, identify the lessons that the department could learn from the experience that it had with the, first the DCMO and then later the CMO, and to draw from that experience uh, lessons that could inform uh, future manifestations of, if not the CMO, uh, other organizational constructs that might be put in place to better manage the department. So tell me some of the, the biggest takeaways you had or maybe anything that surprised you as you went through the process of putting together this report. One, probably one of the biggest takeaways was the fact that the position uh, took so long. The position evolved over time, uh, which is what contributed to its eventual demise or disestablishment. That was, it wasn't very well defined at the outset and it lacked a charter, the CMO at least lacked a charter. So now uh, moving forward several years, when it turned in transition to the CMO, it lacked a charter. So that position wasn't well defined. The DCMO that preceded it wasn't well defined or understood inside of the department. And it was this lack of clear definition and understanding that uh, created and actually fueled kind of antibodies or resistance uh, across around the department to the office because uh, there was uncertainty uh, surrounding what the, the purview or scope of, of the office was and what its authorities were. On a topical reading of it, it almost looks like the Defense Department didn't want a chief management officer. Is that right? So that's correct. And that's, that's true as we account for in the report. There's nothing to suggest that the department was interested in a chief management officer. Uh, in fact, it received objections from the highest levels of the department. And likewise, uh, there was resistance from other echelons across the department. And part of that was that it was designed when the le- initial legislation passed for creating the DCMO, it was designed in such a way that the DCMO was supposed to come in with the new leadership team. And the fact of the matter is that they waited uh, for a long time to select, nominate, and then, um, and, and then to get that person confirmed. And so the initial DCMO, the first DCMO was not coming in with that leadership team. They were coming into a leadership team that had already been in place and functioning in the department for some time, which meant that the DCMO was the new kid on the block, so to speak, who was seen as somewhat of a threat by others. Is there more to that than sort of a turf war? There is a, a turf war. There were personalities at, at play as well. Uh, certainly, Different deputies, secretaries of defenses uh, had different views of what the role of the DCMO was. And so that's a little bit more than your traditional turf war. That's a, a key relationship that needs to exist between the DCMO and the deputy or later the CMO and the deputy uh, that needs to be put in place. There are 
priorities of the individual office holders as well. Each of the office holders that we that we survey and, and uh, chronicle in the report had very different priorities in terms of what they chose to focus on. And so that was part of it as well. Do you ever see this position coming back? Everyone seems to agree that some management is needed. Well, as you're well aware, there uh, there is some uh, current consideration uh, being given to the position coming back. It's not clear that uh, additional thought has been put into the resurrection of the office. Some of the the thought that uh, the additional work and thought that should have been put into it in the first place, and that what was importantly missing the, in the first instance, and I'm not sure is a part of the current discussions, is close collaboration between the department and uh, congressional staff and, and key members and designing that office, what it'll look like, and understanding the, the authorities that will need to be successful. So I, I think that the call for uh, strengthening you know, a stronger management position in the department will, will continue until the, the problem is addressed sufficiently, whether or not the current calls for the recreation, reestablishment of the CMO, survive or not, uh, I guess time will tell in the near future, that is. I think that the calls for a, a strengthening of the management uh, function inside of the department will, will continue. Is there a better path to strengthening that management than recreating that position? So there, there are any number of other options. Uh, you can also imagine a recreating a DCMO. And that's one of the things that we try to, we do talk about in the report is, could the future have been different had the DCMO uh, remained the DCMO rather than being elevated to the CMO? And we provide some uh, some accounting of the, at least some just uh, some logic and, and explanation that would point to the possibility that uh, it would have uh, it could have had a different future should uh, had it remained the DCMO. So that's one potential solution is is creating a DCMO uh, rather than a CMO position. Another possibility that has been discussed that could address some of the problems is a prospect of a term appointment as well. Somebody who is appointed for a set amount of time uh, that can transcend administrations uh, and or uh, be in the term uh, a longer period of time than, uh, than your average political appointee, uh, which contributes to turnover that we cite as being one of the problems in the report as well. That position uh, being held over the course of 13 years by uh, five different officials with large gaps in between them. In fact, uh, it was only filled by, I believe, uh, roughly 45% of the time by a political appointee uh, in that position, confirmed political appointee. And so a term appointment would help address some of those problems as well. So those are a couple of, of solutions. Organizationally, even without the appointment of a senior official like this, a CMO or DCMO, one could imagine the department uh, taking steps to strengthen management, uh, and uh, arguably it's already doing so in some of the advances that are being made inside of DOD and the establishment of a performance improvement officer and the new organization that is beginning to grow up uh, around performance improvement. Um, and so I think that the department is making some, some steps in the right direction as well. So that, that could mature into an organization that uh, helps to address many of the problems that the CMO was originally uh, created to, to solve. Jason Deshant, a researcher at the Institute for Defense Analyses, speaking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Check out Alex's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, how and why DOD has updated its posture plan for biodefense. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. (music) 
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. If the COVID virus showed anything, it's the potency of biology threats. Now, the Defense Department recently completed its 2023 Biodefense Posture Review. It deals with many potential threats from the biodomain. Here with the story behind the review, the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Defense Programs, Brandy Van. Dr. Van, good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. Now, this is labeled 2023. Is this something that the Pentagon does annually among the hundreds of reports it does every year? Or is this something, a one-of type of thing or an occasional type of thing? Yeah, actually, this was the first ever biodefense posture review, and it was directed by Secretary Austin back in November of 2021. He had a memo that he signed out called the Biodefense Vision Memo. And in that memo, he said that we must prepare to operate in biological threat environments and support the national biodefense enterprise, both home and abroad. And within that memo, he also dictated the execution of this biodefense posture review, which was laid out as a foundation from the national defense strategy and the recently published 2022 national biodefense strategy, as well as, of course, lessons that we learned from the COVID-19 pandemic response. Sure. So other reviews of this kind happen on a regular basis. It's yet to be seen whether or not this will be a continuing effort. And does this principally cover how troops themselves will be protected from bio threats in combat or something, God forbid, something happens in Taiwan or whatever? Or is this also how the Defense Department contributes to the, let's say, homeland security, for lack of a better word, defense, should some release or event happen here? Yeah. So first and foremost, it looks at our posture and our readiness and resiliency of our force to operate in a biologically contested environment, no matter the origin, right? So whether that is a deliberate biological weapons attack, a naturally occurring or pandemic disease, or even a laboratory accident. The posture review focuses across that spectrum. Now, it's something to remember that the military has been in conflict operations during every declared pandemic in the last two centuries, right? While they are not biological weapons, they have all challenged operations and our capabilities, whether that's restriction of force flow, design, logistics, or supply. So the BPR really looked at and prioritizes the aim to kind of strengthen and sustain our deterrence operations against these types of threats, while at the same time bolstering the department's resiliency and ability to address current and future threats. So that is everything from understanding what that landscape looks like to clarifying roles and mission spaces across the department, looking at our capability development, and then aligning our authorities and our policies, our research and development and our acquisition programs and all of our investments and even our force structure in order to meet the DOD's base requirements there. We also took a strong look at training and exercises and doctrine and tried to align all of those. We did this under four main lines of effort. The first one was really looking at kind of understanding that threat space, whether or not it was enhanced early warning or understanding what biological incidents we might be faced with. We then also looked at our preparedness activities and how we can better prepare to be a resilient total force. Then we looked at how we speed our mitigation activities to try to minimize the impact of biological incidents to DOD missions. And then finally, how do we improve our strategic coordination and collaboration across the enterprise? 
And when you look at biodefense, it's really not just one thing, because some things you might be able to protect with the latest in gas masks. Other things might take hypodermic injections that you would need in large quantities, and the responses and how you react to a given threat varies as widely as the threats, right? So we're really talking about a sort of multidimensional problem here, it sounds like. Yes, it is. It's very multidimensional. It's very complex. It is expanding and growing as we speak. And we have really identified that today the DOD and the nation is at a pivotal moment in biological defense and understanding the fact that we face an unprecedented number of complex challenges, right? Again, be they naturally occurring potential for laboratory accidents or naturally occurring or even deliberate attacks. So when we look at this space, you know, we, of course, leveraged the National Biodefense Strategy and the National Defense Strategy to understand what that space looks like. And so the National Defense Strategy really speaks to the growing risk of chemical and biological threats in the context of a strategic competition with near-peer competitors and ultimately the potential use of biological weapons or their proliferation by state or non-state actors, right? And that presents challenges in its own. But we also are seeing increase of laboratory accidents with the rise of the number of labs across the world that are conducting high-risk life science research. And that research has the potential to have pandemic pathogens without effective oversight. So that's concerning, of course. We also look at the potential of existing and emerging biotechnologies and how they can be incorporated into potential biological weapons programs for the purposes that are inconsistent with the Biological Weapons Convention. And then at the end, we also are looking at naturally occurring disease. So climate change is really impacting the permafrost layers, and we're seeing the potential of freeing of novel or long dormant pathogens. And then, of course, as we've seen through the COVID-19 pandemic, the infectious disease outbreaks could spread rapidly across continents and oceans and affect our ability to be postured. Yeah, I think malaria has been spotted in a couple of places in the United States. We thought we had that one licked, you know, decades ago. We're speaking with Dr. Brandy Van. She's Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical and Biological Defense Programs. And did you discover some major gaps in the readiness that you might not have been aware of without undertaking this review? We uncovered a number of elements that we realized that we needed to put uh, emphasized effort against. And that is both from a research and development, but really from an organizational and alignment and coordination of efforts across the biodefense enterprise here within the Department of Defense, but also how we work broadly outside of just the DOD for the broader national biodefense enterprise as well. Right. So that was my next question. Did this review involve some of the domestic or civilian agencies that are concerned with this? I mean, HHS, Homeland Security, and a couple of other departments have a piece of biodefense anyway outside of the defense domain. Yeah. So the the biodefense posture review itself was collaborative effort internal to the Department of Defense primarily, right? So we had components from across the DOD and our entities, whether they were defense agencies or OSD components, joint staff, so on and so forth. And we looked at the distinct roles and authorities that they had in playing within the biodefense realm. 
But while we were focused primarily on our internal review, we actually focused a lot of consultation with external stakeholders, including industry partners and academia and global biodefense and health security experts. So we also complemented that with some collaboration with our interagency. So even though the BPR itself was internally focused, the department plays a huge role in the National Biodefense Strategy Implementation Plan under the guidance of the National Security Council. We work with our interagency partners, as you mentioned, to really anchor our strategy in a holistic federal response. And earlier, you mentioned that every time there's been some kind of pandemic, the U.S. military has been at work somewhere in the world. We learned early on in the pandemic, I think it was as early as 2020, late 2020, maybe early 2021, I can't remember, but we had some battleships that were crippled by the amount of COVID infection that had occurred aboard. And it was, I think, kind of a wake-up call that these things are not just potentials. Did that event in the Navy inform some of the thinking here? Absolutely. So the Teddy Roosevelt incident uh, and the fact that they had to stay for a long time in Guam and restrict their movement absolutely played a factor in this. Though I will say, while COVID did highlight a number of opportunities for us to kind of change or improve the way that we were responding to threats, this is not just about the pandemics and, and about COVID. This is truly looking, again, across that spectrum of potential threat agents. All right. And so what happens next? Their review is done, and now there are some operational changes that probably have to happen or maybe some acquisitions that could result. Yeah, so there are a number of research and development capability development efforts that are underway now because of the biodefense posture review. In addition to that, we are increasing our support and our reviews of how we are effectively doing training and exercising within the department. But one of the major reform efforts that we came up with in the biodefense review was the establishment of a new governance structure for biodefense. The reason behind that was the BPR's analysis found that the biodefense enterprise was great, but it could really improve the unity of effort to strengthen our integration mechanisms for both situational awareness as well as prioritization of readiness and preparedness activities to try to maximize the efforts within the department. And that sounds like that could be in some ways a whole of government effort also. Yeah. So again, the council itself was tasked to us through the deputy secretary and the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to try to serve as the principal forum to advise them on biodefense issues and try to synchronize and integrate the authorities and responsibilities across the department into a singular body. Part of that body is absolutely going to be facilitating information flow in and outside of the department and across the department, most importantly. And that council is going to have representatives from across OSD and the joint staff and even within the combatant commands and services that are executing this and having to be aware of those types of issues on a daily basis. And a final question, is there any particular threats that the review staff thought this is something new and emerging? What should we worry about, I guess? Yeah, yeah. So I get this question a lot is what, what keeps you up at night? So I think that the thing that we recognize in the biodefense review 
was that the again the complexity of the threats and the sheer number of threats that we potentially face in the department and as a nation for national security is so large that it takes us actually relooking at how we structure our preparedness and response activities and again our goal in the biodefense posture review and now in the council and the department is to ensure that the reforms that we are going to be laying out over the next you know few years will provide our force the resilience and the response capabilities to effectively operate no matter the origin of the incident and no matter where that incident occurs. Who knows, the most potent weapon might not be the next generation of combat rifle, but just simply coughing on the enemy. That's right. It could be. Dr. Brandy Van is Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical and Biological Defense Programs. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. This was great. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the biodefense posture at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the State Department is next to expand into a classified commercial cloud. But first, how the Ability One program is coping when agencies need fewer office supplies. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Ability One program employs people with disabilities to manufacture many commodities for the government, from military uniforms to those wonderful ballpoint pens. I've got a couple of dozen of them myself. A big focus for Ability One is office supplies and furnishings. And for how the program is faring with so much of federal office space vacant, we turn to the Ability One executive director, Kim Zeik. Ms. Zeik, good to have you with us. Tom, it is great to be with you and your listeners. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about Ability One and how our disability employment program is evolving and delivering for our customers. Yeah, and just review for us the fact that I guess the major customer for Ability One is federal procurement officers, the federal government, so that this is not a charitable thing, but it's a way of helping the government and helping the people that you serve as employees. Yes, the Ability One program leverages federal procurement to tap into one of our nation's underutilized workforces. That is, people who are blind or people with significant disabilities. As you mentioned, we supply a number of products and perform a lot of services as well uh, across the United States in federal buildings, federal military installations. And in doing so, our program provides an on-ramp to employment and the economy for individuals who are blind or have significant disabilities. And a big product line has been office furnishings, office furniture, and also so many of the supplies people needed. I mentioned those famous pens that I think go back to World War II, still one of the great items of all time in the field of writing instruments. But has the Ability One business been affected by the fact that since the onset of the pandemic, you know, people's offices have been largely vacant? One of the predictable consequences of the pandemic was a lower demand for some of the Ability One products. We know that the consumable office supplies, for example, were not being used at the same rate in fiscal year 21, 22. But we are seeing a rebound in sales of some of these most commonly used products through the third quarter of this fiscal year. And historically, the fourth quarter is a spike in sales. So that will really determine the outcome for the entire year. I will say that our services sales have been stable year over year. Those tend to have fewer peaks and valleys. 
but we do expect to see a slight upturn at the end of this year. Well, that's good. And I guess the other product lines like military uniforms and so forth would have been unaffected by whatever happened outside in the economy and the rest of it. Well, the Department of Defense is the AbilityOne program's largest customer. And I will say that our sales and employment tends to rise as DOD purchasing rises. So I don't see a significant impact in terms of the pandemic. Of course, DOD did get very involved in purchasing the PPE items, the personal protective equipment that were so critical and necessary at the outset of the pandemic. And that is one area in which the Ability One program truly surged. We had people who are blind or have significant disabilities working second shifts, even weekends at the start of the pandemic to make sure we could get PPE to our customers. I guess the obvious question now that we're past all of this, were people mostly still in person working? Because it could be that the accommodating types of technologies or systems for people with disabilities may not have been replicated in their homes. And so during that period, they would still be working together? Or how'd that all happen? By and large, the Ability One employees never left the workplace. We have over 36,000 program employees. They have many of those essential frontline jobs that continue to be performed on site throughout the pandemic. I mentioned they took on extra shifts, they produced extra products. They also worked very hard to clean and disinfect federal buildings to provide essential services like hospital housekeeping and really supported the continuity of our customers' operations. I'm very proud of the way our workforce demonstrated just how committed and essential they are. We're speaking with Kim Zyke. She is the executive director of the U.S. Ability One Commission. And recently, there were new, I guess, congressionally mandated compliance requirements for the Ability One employers with respect to paying people more than they had been paying. What's going on there? How are you responding? And how's that whole update going? The U.S. Ability One Commission published a rule last year that would end the payment of subminimum wages on Ability One contracts. And the commission communicated in the strongest possible way that subminimum wages are not consistent with the values and expectations that we have for the Ability One program. I'm very happy to say that the implementation has gone smoothly. And as of October 1st of this year, we will have parity in minimum wages across all Ability One employees. So that's a very positive step for our program. It's a promise the commission made and a promise the commission is keeping. And it's also very important to our community I've spoken with a number of employees who used to earn less than the minimum wage. I was just in Seattle last week meeting with some of our employees, and they understand what it means to be treated the same as everyone else and to earn the same as everyone else. So it's truly a matter of respect and equity. And are commission employees employees of the government in that sense, or do they work for contractors who are then reselling in effect to the commission and to the government? The Ability One workforce that is comprised of persons who are blind or have significant disabilities, they are federal contractors. They work for nonprofit Ability One qualified employers across the country. And then we have the U.S. Ability One Commission, which is the federal agency charged with oversight and administration. And we are a small, what I would call a micro agency headquartered in Washington. Got it. And the long-term implication of people making at least minimum wage is that, you know, if they have something like an IRA or any kind of savings plan, 
then their long-term potential for taking care of themselves in old age is enhanced because they have more to put away. I'm so glad you brought up the financial benefits and the financial planning perspective. We're working very closely with nonprofit organizations that are implementing and communicating about ABLE accounts. ABLE accounts are savings accounts that people who have disabilities can open depending on when they had an onset of their disability. And the beauty of ABLE accounts is it does allow individuals to save more money and accrue some assets. And the savings in those ABLE accounts don't count against their thresholds to earn certain benefits. All right. What else do we need to know this year? I mean, we're coming to the end of a fiscal year. And as this airs, people are rushing with whatever money they do have in this end. But what do people need to know about Ability One as we enter 2024 fiscally and pretty soon on the calendar? Yes. The Ability One program, in a nutshell, is a network of responsive and reliable contractors who are accustomed to adapting and meeting the changing needs of our federal customers through a workforce that intentionally includes people who are blind or have significant disabilities. Ability One is evolving. We have a strategic plan and a strategic direction that places a strong emphasis on quality contract performance, competitive pricing, partnerships with industry, and also integrated employment outcomes. We're partnering with a number of other federal agencies and federal contractors so that Ability One can also be a talent pool for them. And I would also add that next month is National Disability Employment Awareness Month. Every October is an opportunity to celebrate the contributions of American workers with disabilities and to showcase inclusive employment policies and practices. So this year's theme is Advancing Access and Equity. And the Office of Disability Employment Policy within the Department of Labor has some excellent online resources for those interested in learning more. All right. And are those black famous pens still bestsellers? The black retractable pen will never go away. I've got a blue retractable pen here at my desk. So the Ability One Skillcraft products are iconic in the federal government, and they create employment. Well, they write better than a Mont Blanc, I can tell you that. Kim Zyke is Executive Director of the U.S. Ability One Commission. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the State Department is next to expand into a classified commercial cloud. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. A high-ranking goal for the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research Strategic Plan is transforming its digital enterprise. Now, the underlying initiatives are what you might expect, agile software development, a technology governance board. For the fundamental project that will power all of the other initiatives, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke to the Bureau's Chief Information Officer, Jimmy Hall, Jr. I released the first ever TS Cloud Strategy, and that strategy outlined the vision the roadmap for modernizing IT infrastructure, improving efficiency, agility, and security with cloud computing, right, and achieving strategic objectives at the same time. So we're operating the AWS TS Cloud today, and we're in the process of refining our implementation plan. And what I'll do uh, going forward is communicate that strategy, communicate our implementation plan to all the stakeholders, and then I'll fold that into uh, a aforementioned governance structure to ensure successful 
very successful execution. I will tell you, though, however, there are several challenges with migrating to the cloud, right, um, including the knowledge and skills, technical debt, evolving federal mandates, uh, software inventory, vendor lock-in, et cetera, et cetera, and then the, the AI machine learning conversations that are dominating uh, the news and the headlines today. So just a few details on each of uh, some of those challenges. Cloud knowledge and skills. We will need to ensure that our staff possess the necessary cloud computing skills and knowledge to successfully manage the cloud environment. This will include understanding how to configure, provision, and monitor cloud resources, as well as how to ensure security and compliance in the cloud. Technical debt that I talked about. Just for definition purposes, I'm referring to technical debt as the accumulation of outdated and insufficient technology practices that have hindered the Bureau's ability to innovate and adapt. As we move deeper into the cloud, we will need to address any technical debt that may exist in the current IT infrastructure, such as legacy applications and outdated hardware. Through evolving federal mandates, I list that in the challenging category only because, you know, it's something that we need to keep our eye on, right? Uh, the Bureau as a federal government agency is subject to the various federal mandates and regulations. And we'll need to stay up to date on any of those changes to those mandates and ensure that our cloud environment remains compliant with all applicable regulations. In terms of software inventory, we need to maintain a comprehensive inventory of all software applications and services that we're using inside of the cloud environment. This will help ensure that we are aware of any potential security vulnerabilities or compliance issues. It can also help with cost management. Now talk about something called vendor lock-in. We need to carefully consider which cloud providers use that we use and ensure that we develop an exit strategy in the case we need to switch providers in the future. This can help prevent vendor lock-in, which can limit our ability to switch to a different uh, provider if necessary, and sometimes uh, help us control costs too. And then I touched a little bit up about the uh, AI and machine learning, right? So we look forward to leveraging cloud-based AI and machine learning services to help analyze and interpret large amounts of data. Obviously, uh, doing so requires specialized knowledge and skills, as well as careful, very careful consideration of ethical and privacy concerns. All right, I appreciate the, the, all the background there. I think it's, it's really helpful. Uh, I'm going to go back to the one thing you mentioned is the first ever TS Cloud strategy. Jimmy, I'm just going to guess here, and, and this is you know years of experience coming to, to the forefront. I imagine that is not a public release to Cloud strategy. Is that, is that is my guess right? It's, it's not publicly re- released. No, it's not. All right. I, I had a feeling it wasn't. So because I know a lot of vendors do listen to the show, I imagine if a vendor wants to provide you services or help you out or understand your cloud strategy, uh, they would have to come to you and say, hey, I have a TSCI clearance, and, and they'd be maybe allowed to talk to you a little bit about that? Uh, that's correct. Well, good to know, because uh, again, uh, trying to limit how many calls and emails you do get coming down in the future. When you talk about the roadmap and improving efficiency, and again, I know there's some sensitivities here because it's top secret. Are, are you all semi in the cloud, a little bit in the cloud? How would you characterize your current use of cloud services today? And, and where do you want to get to? What are some of those goals when you talk about improving efficiency, agility, strategic objective? Where would you like to see yourself when it comes to this top secret cloud, you know, a year from now, five years from now? We're in the cloud. And when you look at the steps of moving the cloud, a number of applications we need to move in the cloud, there's more we need to move into the cloud. If I were to put a percentage on it today, I would say that we're 30% in the cloud, uh, 30% out of 100% as we move more applications and services to the cloud. Our approach is a multi-cloud approach, uh, vice a hybrid approach. Uh, so we, we, we plan to step our way through. I mentioned earlier about us working on an implementation plan and that implementation plan will lay out the details of how we will proceed forward 
uh, at some point, though, we, we will expand to a multi-cloud environment. So we'll move not from not a, not away from AWS solely, but expand to some of the cloud offerings out there. At the end of the day, what we're looking for is a secure environment, one that's coupled with the data strategy, and one that allows and enables our analysts and our diplomats to enjoy the benefits of either the open source intelligence or some of the more classified sources of intelligence that they have a need to know. The other side of the coin here is you mentioned multi-cloud hybrid strategy. I imagine you also will continue to have some sort of data center presence I guess the goal would be to reduce how much data centers you are using. Is that part of this discussion? It is part of the discussion. And similarly to DOD, we inside of the State Department are looking to reduce data centers as well. And so data center is definitely not my business when it comes to TSSEF. I'm going to allow the other half of the State Department, Dr. Kelly Fletcher and her team, run the data centers. So each day we're migrating either applications, equipment out of the data centers that we're currently running, and we're going to reduce that footprint to what's more manageable. Part of this move to the cloud, as you mentioned, is the technology debt, and I appreciate the fact you, you offered a little bit of a definition. A lot of folks, when you look at technology debt, look, you know, kind of place it in kind of three buckets, right? There's applications and, and software and services that are ready today, and maybe they'll go to the cloud. There's some that maybe need some refactoring, and then some will need a lot of work. How do you break that down, your technical debt? Or do you have more in one bucket and less in the other? Where are you at with understanding what's ready today and what what will need more work at time and resources? I like how you characterize it. It's only been 90 days, but I, but I have not gotten to the point where I'm ready to peel back the technical debt and, and, and lay out a strategy moving forward. So that is on my uh, short-term list of dues, and I would say in the next uh, – 60 days, and we'll have an approach. Jimmy Hall Jr. is Chief Information Officer and Director of the Technology Innovation Office at the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more episodes of Ask the CIO at federalnewsnetwork.com. Von Noga, he's the Chief Information Officer at the Environmental Protection Agency. He likes to say, if you're talking about the need to modernize your infrastructure, you're already too late. What he means is that CIOs need to always focus on and talk about hardware and software updating. Noga tells Federal News Network's Jason Miller how EPA is staying ahead of the curve to make sure that no matter where employees work, everyone has the same experience. I don't go back three years. I go back to to Snowmageddon when we had a bunch of folks in D.C. who were out for a long, long time. I mean, it really kind of punctuated the need to ensure that we have a continually evolving infrastructure, which means we need to make sure we've got the right tools um, in our employees' hands so they can be effective uh, anywhere. And so we really adopted the the, the, the mobile workforce, if you will, um, laptops, issuing laptops back many, many years ago. So when the pandemic hit, we were actually in a good position because our workforce uh, had the tools they needed to, to get their jobs done. And it was really fine-tuning at that point, really identifying, hey, now we've got we've got this large number of folks who are, are working remotely, can the infrastructure support that many people connecting to the network and doing their jobs? And really, we looked at fine-tuning it. Um, and I think we've, we, we've adopted that. Uh, we continue to adopt that and we continue refining. So uh, during the pandemic, we got really good at provisioning resources. You know, in, the, in pre-pandemic days, people would come into the office on the first day, they would get uh, issued a laptop. Uh, during the pandemic, we had to be really good about how do we how do we get these these tools out to the employees so they're effective on the first day of work. And so we really looked at 
um, the pipeline of, of, of how we, how we um, mail UPS these devices out to, uh, to individuals so they're productive on day one. The change that's happened as folks come back to work, has that also forced you to rethink about refining that infrastructure? Kind of what's the next step in that adoption and refi refining? Because as folks are in the office, folks are working from home, folks are, you have to have the support. What, what does that look like over the last, you know, six months, a year or so? Yeah, I think what we adopted and certainly we've adopted for, for, for quite a while is, is we want the experience that you had at work to be the same experience that you have at home, right? So, so if you have to teach someone to work a different way, when they actually have to do it, um, they're not going to be as effective at it, right? So if you, if you say, hey, this is how you're going to work regardless of where you sit, you know, the, the education process is a lot easier. Um, and so we've tried to reduce the, this is what's different about when you telework versus when you're in the office, right? So, you, you know, really the, the only difference that folks see when they're at home, albeit unless they need to use specialized tools, uh, but for most people, it's the same experience. Generally, they, they for, for a lot of folks, they don't need to connect to the VPN to, to do their day-to-day -day activities. Um, they, can, they can work remotely and not have to go through the next the extra step of attaching the VPN. And so again, part of our goal was to reduce the complexity by which people get their jobs done. And as CIO, that's really your goal, not to add complexity, not to add barriers, not to make it harder, because as you know, as I know, folks will find a way around it if you add too many roadblocks or, or even make it too hard to connect. You mentioned the VPN piece. That, that was something that you talked about about a year ago, wanting to move off VPNs and reduce the reliance on that technology. Sounds like you have. Sounds like that's a success story. Well, you know, we still use VPNs. They're still in use. But part of our goal was to reduce the requirement by, by which people needed to be on the VPN. And, and we've done that effectively. Without getting into the, the sensitivities that put you to come with it, is it, are you relying more on cloud services? Are you relying more on multi-factor authentication? Can you just come maybe from a 50,000 foot level? All of the above. I mean, certainly um, just like a lot of other federal agencies, we adopted cloud capabilities a long time ago um, and having those in place allows us the, and, and affords us the, the opportunity to reduce the reliance on those EPN um, and, and on-premise um, type services. And if you don't mind going down that path just a little bit, when you talk about you've adopted cloud capabilities, do you have data that you would be able to provide or even a, a, an idea that you are, you have 80% of your applications in the cloud, 20% in the cloud? Is it mostly software as a service? Is it a lot of infrastructure, all of the above? Well, I mean, I was going to say all of the above. We're actually going through our IT portfolio reviews. So we, we do structure reviews with all the programs and regions every year. And, and one of the, the topics that we've been talking to the, our regions and programs about is, is cloud adoption. Um, and, and when we stand back and you look at cloud adoption, it's very significant uh, across the regions and the programs. And, and, and cloud is one of those funny things, you know, a, a cloud service for folks in our national computer center who are running the equipment is, you know, the traditional cloud services, cloud services for our folks in the region who are relying on us to provide those virtual and remote services. For them, that's, that's a cloud service that they've adopted. Uh, they don't manage infrastructure. They, they manage uh, their application, um, and they manage uh, access controls for users who are using those applications. And, and so we're seeing quite a bit cloud adoption, certainly on new applications. Um, I would say it's, it's a very, very high percentage that folks are going to be adopting cloud services before they do traditional on-prem hosting. Because you're 
have that adoption. And because of that, that makes that infrastructure, that makes that same experience, whether you're working remotely, working in the office, the same. What's the feedback or how are you measuring, I guess I should ask you, that feedback from the employees? Hey, are you finding that? Are you having problems? Do you have a survey? Are you going out more often? Or, or is it just a combination of word of mouth and other things? So I've been in IT for a long time. And, and generally, you know when things aren't working well. Uh, because your phone is always ringing, because uh, senior management are, are knocking on your door saying, why isn't this working very well? And so, you know, just kind of as a barometer, use the, hey, what are we hearing? Uh, do we have uh, dissatisfied customers within within the EPA? Um, and I would say, on large, we've got a very productive workforce who have adopted the technology we put out there and are successfully doing their jobs. And so, so when my phone doesn't ring, I, I take that as a good sign that that uh, that things are going well. Certainly, you know, we 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 look at um, the 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 surveys that are put out. I know GSA puts put a survey out um, about people's support and adoption of technologies and how happy they are with them. And so we generally see that we're getting good scores. There's nothing that really drives my attention one way or the one way or the other when we when we look at the results from that. So. I want to talk a little bit about infrastructure upgrades because you know we talk a lot about the cloud and cloud applications and software as a service, but it's that underlying infrastructure that matters too. A lot of agencies, can you just talk a little bit about where you're at with you know kind of that underlying infrastructure, that main network you're using? Just like everyone else, we've adopted EIS and and the services there, and we're nearly 100% complete with our EIS transition, which I'm, I'm very happy about. From an infrastructure perspective, and going back and looking at infrastructure, you know, to me, infrastructure is something that you continually modernize. Right? I, I, I know that the, the big buzz is, you know, how do we modernize? And I think when you get to the point where you're having a, a discussion about finding resources or dollars to modernize an aging infrastructure, um, you're already too late, quite frankly. Um, you, we need to have this as part of the conversation on, on a daily basis. What part of the infrastructure do we need to modernize to make sure that we don't get behind? Um, and so, you know, things, something as simple as how we do refresh for, for laptop refresh. We don't wait for, for the technology to get so old that it's unsupported. Because uh, at that point, you're, you already have introduced issues of, of performance issues that the end user sees. You've already introduced security issues associated with patching and upgrading those devices for the modern operating systems. And, and so, you know, we really adopted the, you know, we're providing these tools for the employees to get their jobs done. The the tools need to make they need to work. They need to be secure, and and they need to support the 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 employees' ability to get their jobs done. And so we've got structured tech refresh that is it's not a hey do we need to go find the money? It's hey we are going to make sure that we treat it as a fixed cost. There's a fixed cost associated with upgrading the environment. We need to make sure that we we spend the money on it. And and the nice thing about it is we've got the support from from all the senior leadership within the agency. They recognize the importance to make sure we have a, a modern and secure infrastructure. Vaughn Noga, Chief Information Officer at the Environmental Protection Agency. You can hear the full interview starting Tuesday at federalnewsnetwork.com. Just click on Workplace Reimagined. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 